This episode of Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters. You've heard us mention them on the podcast before, and if you're in Fairbanks or you're going to be coming through Fairbanks for a fishing, hunting, or camping trip, it's a great place to stop and get what you need. It's a locally owned Fairbanks business that I've been shopping at since I came up here, and really it's the type of sporting goods store you would hope to find in a place like Fairbanks. They've got a ton of hunting, fishing, trapping, and camping supplies, including backpacking meals and stoves, clothing, real rain gear, good footwear, including mountain hunting boots like Loa, rubber boots like Extra Tufts and Lacrosse, and they also have a great selection of guns, ammo, shooting and hand-loading supplies, and even muzzle-loading stuff. Now, they also carry a wide variety of fishing and dip-nating equipment to tackle just about any fish Alaska has to offer. In Century Hardware downstairs, you'll be able to find a big selection of marine, snow machine, and ATV supplies like ramps, hitches, gun boots, um, good gas jugs, not the junk you find everywhere else, and all sorts of odds and ends for your boat or anything else you could need, and of course, whatever hardware you might find yourself in need of. In fact, it's one of those stores that you'll usually end up leaving with more than you planned on buying because they're really good at finding and stocking things that you just didn't realize you needed until you saw them. Frontier Outfitters is located in the Gavora Mall on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, as well as Century Hardware out in North Pole. It's a great store, so next time you're gearing up, get on down there and tell them you heard about it on Tundra Talk. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Real Estate, a local brokerage that can cover your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area, whether it's residential, commercial, or just undeveloped property. The Hedgecocks have been active in the Fairbanks and North Pole real estate market since the early 80s and have put together a team that really reflects the diverse needs of homebuyers in interior Alaska. With a brokerage team made up of multi-generation Fairbanks locals, transplants, and military veterans, they really understand the unique aspects of living in the interior and what that means when it comes to shopping for a home in general, buying land to build a home, and they also understand the situations that many military members are in when needing to buy or sell a home in Fairbanks. This is really a unique place to live, and whether it's learning why some houses have water holding tanks instead of wells, how much it'll cost to heat a given house, or just what recreational opportunities are close by, they're here to help you. More than simply acquiring or building a piece of property, they can help you find the right property in the right place and help you learn from their experience. The Hedgecock Group offices are on Noble Street in Fairbanks, and if you want to get in touch with them, visit www.fairbanksakhomes.com. That's how you do it. All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm stoked to sit down today with Mr. Larry Bartlett of uh, Pristine Ventures. Yeah, I met Larry. What was it? it's got to been like? It was a long time Almost ago. 20 years ago. Well, not quite 20 years ago, but it was a long time ago. You were in your early 20s, I think. Yeah, real early. I don't even know if I was. No, I was like maybe 19, or, <laughs> 19 or 20. Yeah, you were getting after it. Yeah, doing that Arctic survival class. Yeah. And that was a fun, that was a fun class. Yeah, that's been so long ago. It's amazing uh, to, to watch your personal career rise, you know, starting to ride. And you've been a hunter. It's just, it's been inspiring to see someone that I saw as a student, you know, quasi student. And, uh, it was like, this guy doesn't belong in school. He belongs, you know, in the field. He's <laughs> yeah. ready. I wish I would have realized that a long time before that too. It goes by quick. Yeah, no, that was, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, yeah, living, it's funny. And I've talked about a bunch, you know, you live in Fairbanks. I usually bump into you a couple times a year. That's some people that you may not want to see. I end yeah. up bumping into all the time. Yeah, but. They're on your route to Fred Meyer. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's right. But yeah, why? Well, uh, and I'm glad you could come over. This is a little last minute since this whole uh, whole unit twenty three twenty six a caribou thing came out. I've been needing to to get an episode out about it. Um, there's been a lot. Of, we've been able to get the word out quite a bit. There's like I can tell the feds are getting harassed enough because they've made two changes to the public comment yeah. opportunity, which I think is what's today the twenty first. So it's the written comment. The like what like three four day yeah five it was a day four day window yeah. window to get your written comments in is over but the main one the the actual teleconference meeting that you you have to call in for to leave your comments is this Friday April twenty third from they it was initially just five to seven p.m. right 
Oh, and or until people quit calling in, but they did just also change that to three, right? Yeah, that's what uh, Mark Richards posted online. I haven't verified that, but he's he's a good source of information. Yeah, I think I saw the DOI. Um, yeah, and I'll and I'll put you know relevant relevant info for for getting onto this teleconference um, on the in the show notes, so you can go click on the link and and go to it. But yeah, if you if you care about hunting in Alaska at all. If this is one to call in and, and, and harass him because, and you know, I'll let Larry, Larry go. He's, he's a lot more, has a lot more in-depth knowledge on what's been going on and specifically this area and places like this area, as far as, uh, efforts to kind of keep, keep not, not just non-residents, but non-locals out and kind of eliminate competition. So yeah, man. Yeah. So wildlife special action 21-01 for me started many years before, and I'll take you back to 2016, um, with the very first closure that kind of woke everyone up who hunts out of Kotzebue and, you know, off the Noatak region. And even those that are in hunting, uh, public land around NPRA on the Colville river, 26A, Mm -hmm. there was a closure that basically came out of nowhere at this time, guys like you guys like me, people who are listening, weren't really in tune with what was happening with the office's subsistence management, um, and then we got this closure for, uh, see, I believe it was wildlife special action 16 dash zero one. So 2016, it was the first, first, uh, proposal put in for 2016, which means it was put in, in the fall of 2015 mm. by the, by the RACs, the regional advisory committee committees. So, um, that closure basically shut down unit 23 without warning. It was like, oh, they posted a public comment. No one really commented on it. And then suddenly they announced that there was going to be no caribou hunting on federal land in unit 23. And then within a few months, wildlife special action 1703 and 04 came out back to back that, uh, because of, um, the local regional advisory councils hearing from all the public or the, the, the local communities, for example, Selowick, No Attack, Ambler, Kiana, uh, Cobook, all of the communities that are on the No Attack and the Cobook and the Selowick came together at these regional advisory committees and basically said, we think that the, uh, you know, all this air charter traffic and the non-local hunting pressures is changing the migration of the herd. And we're not seeing caribou and people aren't filling their freezers and we're, we're not getting this assistance um, opportunities that we're used to. So they enacted an, rules of, under ANILCA uh, Title Eight and shut down Unit 23. So that was a blow to everyone who hunts in the region. Strangely, though, that's only about 500 people that really show interest and use unit 23 and 26a and most of those are non-local so we alaska residents as a whole this is one of those herds that's semi-difficult to reach it's somewhat Mm -hmm. expensive when you compare road accessible uh, herds that we have access to in the interior and and, you know central arctic herd but uh, in general these closures really set a precedence for anywhere else in the state that has federal public land yeah and that's what created such the uproar so I got involved with those three special actions in 2016 and 17, primarily through Backcountry Hunters of Alaska, or Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Alaska chapter, as a way that I be- believed at the time uh, an organization would have more clout or you know street credit to come into these um, public meetings and their say would have a little bit more weight than an average non-resident who, yeah. who doesn't even know the issues. He just doesn't want the area closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that, that gave me an opportunity to really delve into the the heart of the issue. And what I've come to, to realize is they're really, the only issue is a, is a fictitious or an ideological belief that any non-local who hires an, a transporter out of Kotzebue is going to disrupt the herd if they if they go into that region looking for caribou opportunities anytime in August. And then why not uh, add another 30-day period for that to make sure that the herd comes through all of these villages without any non-local pressure? Well, they tried that in 2016 and 17, 
And when they did make those closure, those proposals passed, that shut down all federal public land in Unit 23 and 26A. They wanted 26B to be included Jeez, in Because 26B encompasses the corridor too, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What we realized and what I was there to film a documentary during those closures, all of during uh, the, I think it was the second week of August during these closures, I decided I was going to hunt on federal public land below mean high water. So I hired a transporter from Kotzebue. We flew in all of the drainages of the no attack that we could have a point in and a point out that didn't interfere with the existing controlled use corridors mm-hmm. along the no attack, which is closed to aircraft uh, support for hunting. All of the rivers were dry, which meant none of the natives could go up the no attack yeah. More than halfway, they maybe to the Cutler, but certainly not to the Nimiuktuk. Um, so I had to go to 26A to find caribou, and what that did was it opened my eyes to the realization that everyone from the Dalton Highway, from Dead Horse, Happy Valley, Bettles, even all of those transporters were putting caribou hunters basically anywhere state land existed, and and for that region. You're basically looking at the Atibaluk and the Naigu area. Yeah. So you have a concentration of about 35 hunters in one week period putting direct pressure in the exact zone where the natives claim any pressure in this region is going to affect the migration in a negative way. Well, during that year, we had 35 hunters or so. There were 120 caribou taken during a month period in Howard Pass region. Mm -hmm. And... The natives claimed that they had the best year ever because non-locals weren't allowed to, to uh, you know, come in and out of Kotzebue, which was wrong and infactual in, in, in itself. We showed direct pressure on the Atibaluk and Naigu, and that was in the heart of the migration, caribou crossing both sides of the river, all in a general movement from northeast to, to west and southwest toward all of those villages, the no attack yeah. drainages, the, Co- the Kobuk uh, River, all of that was on time. And they had the best year ever for harvest. And they believed that it was because of the, the effectiveness or the efficacy of these closures. When all that, what, all that the closures did was concentrate all of the hunting pressure into one zone, which happened to be in the heart of the early migration where if you disrupt cows and young bulls and they don't lay the networks for the herd, then that, in theory, would disrupt the herd migration timing, displacement, etc., um, thereby affecting all of the local communities downstream of the of Howard Pass, virtually, which in which several hundred miles of terrain yeah. going any direction. Um, so it was a false claim. They have to wait a three year period to submit these, from what I understand of the of the federal rules. So here we are, 2020 and um, 21, and the same the same complaints that non local hunting pressure and airport air transport traffic is causing a disruption of subsistence opportunities and use and it's affecting the migration of the herd which puts it at a conservation level for from the native perspective so those are the two main complaints that they settled on for wildlife special action 21-01 for this year mm-hmm. What we learned by reading the transcripts from the regional advisory, the meeting minutes, the meeting yeah. minutes was that their original proposal was to claim COVID. Yep. You know, they wanted a COVID uh, restriction to prevent any non-locals, specifically in their statements, non-residents. And the office, what pissed me off the most was reading the minutes and seeing the facilitation by the Office of Subsistence Management, uh, specifically... Um, Stevenson and and Moss, those two basically helped them wordsmith with this other guy, George Papas, which is the acting supervisor of the OSM, setting in on the Regional Advisory Council meeting to uh, facilitate and wordsmith this proposal. Well, they started off with COVID, and and OSM told them that it was invalid. When you read the discussion, it's no, oh, there's you know, there's got to be a way. I can't believe we're letting we're letting non-locals in here with COVID. And I've I've heard similar anecdotes from from someone on a, on an AC in a different re- rural region. You know that that the number one priority is keeping non-locals out, regardless of regardless of, of the reason, opportunity yeah. or population. And you know, like it's you know, disc- actual discussion about how 
they can use COVID to that manner. Yeah. So OSM tells them that's an invalid proposal. We we can't even think about this proposal. It's invalid as it stands. Yeah. So OSM wordsmiths this document to to basically include um, conservation concern and um, continued subsistence use, and neither of those. Uh, foundations have any supporting evidence whatsoever except for hunches and scintilla and that's just not true when they put these proposals in it was november october mid-october when they put put the first proposal to close down for this year um it was in november 3rd when this meeting took place with the osm and the regional the northwest regional advisory committee you got to think about that timeline this this past november the herd historically doesn't even show up to no attack in Cobook and Canna and all those places um, in in fervor in full force until October, November through January. So they're claiming empty freezers um, about the herd status not being the, uh, big enough to support everyone, and the migration is disrupted. We're not everyone's freezers empty. That was total BS. People in in no attack were already harvesting their animals. They came through earlier than expected mm. during August and September. So everyone in Cobook, above uh, Cobook, Onion Portage, even over in Noatak, were getting their animals. It was just those in Kotzebue who hadn't gotten their animals yet, and they never do till November to January, depending on the year. Well, part of the the deal that that baffles me, and I, I know I've heard, seen several references to the there's you know been studies to and nothing, no sort of any kind of legitimate data to show that that air traffic or hunter pressure is, is changing that migration. I mean, caribou don't know what they're doing tomorrow. Right. I mean, they're, yeah, it's largely weather, weather dependent. Yeah. And and even in those meeting minutes, and that was kind of the frustrating thing for someone who doesn't live out there is you can, you can see the discussion that there's, that they know there's other factors affecting this too. But it's, you know, that's the one they choose to go after because... Yeah, it, they won't discuss those. It seems like, yeah, that's... Yeah, they won't... You know, you, you hear all the discussion of all the, you know, all the wolves and bears, but they yeah. won't ask the fed, they won't ask the feds to, to implement predator control. Right. You know, and, and yeah, there's just so much, so much frustrating stuff about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can sympathize, you know, like everyone getting, you know, living here in Fairbanks... You get the feeling, you know, even 40 mile, I wish, you know, all these guys from Anchorage wouldn't come up and hunt that. But it's like, you know, everyone experiences that fleeting thought type of thing, but in no way would it ever be fair to do that. Yeah. Well, starting in the 80s when Anoka was established, you know, it's agreed upon the, the, the Anoka was set up to protect the subsistence way of life. mm -hmm. Granted, it's a great opportunity. It's, it's, it should be, it should exist. And it does exist for a great reason. There's language in there that protects everyone, natives, non-locals, um, non-local subsistence hunters from Anchorage who were born in, say, Cobook. You mm-hmm. know, under these closures, they can't go back and hunt because they're non-local. Their zip code doesn't match the areas of complaint. So is that is is uh, the way I understood it? Maybe I have it wrong. Maybe you do have to be a local. Um, is it just non-rural residents like like if you live in Glen Allen you could go up there and hunt that's yeah that's that's uh not the case that's not the case yeah here. if you if you don't live in the northwest communities and there's a, a large list of those from basically Buckland all the way up to Wainwright and okay. and uh Barrow and uh even New Ixod, um th- those are all zip codes that fall into the northwest and and north slope regions um, the 26A or the North Slope Councils, mm-hmm. the Northwest Councils are Unit 23, basically, is what we're dealing with anyway here. So any non-local, meaning you were born in Kiana or Kotzebue, um, but you now you live in Glen Allen or Anchorage or Wasilla, you cannot go there and legally hunt on federal public land uh, with the closures as they are proposed. Yeah. And the bi- I mean, the biggest issue with all this is it, because it's not it's not due to a scientific or herd management yeah, necessity. So, yeah, so what what you see politically or social politically, you have these working groups, mm-hmm. of, namely since we're dealing with 23 and 26A, let's talk about the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group. That's a group of um I had a I held a seat from 2010 
through 2013 for Fairbanks Hunters. They have a you know a seat around the table that have input. National Park Service has a seat. BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, all Native communities. No attack. Cobook, Selawick. There's a variety of villages who are, were uh, given allowances to have presence and mm-hmm. input on on the western what this working group does is basically shape the the management plan for these caribou using state science federal science and all of the all of the uh the these agencies groups, yeah. the agencies who own the land manage you know the the land manager agencies are responsible for helping with this working group with the natives and it's basically to protect the um the letter of the law, so to speak, of Anilka mm-hmm. and the state sovereignty, meaning the caribou, the wildlife, are a state resource. They're not a native resource. They have priority over this resource, but it's not theirs. Yeah, It's not theirs to decide. And that's that's the purpose of some of these working groups, to guide the management plan for the Western Arctic herd. The, we then, the, as a working group, make a meeting notes, a formal uh, testimony, or, a, you know, a a, a booklet that gets provided to the Northwest Regional Advisory Committees, the North Slope Councils, everyone who has an interest, a shareholder, stakeholders in this resource, understand what the state believes is uh, the common or the current population status, its health, the range health, fire hazards, a variety of, you know, um, climate information that could be affecting herds general timing what's happening with trends in the last 10 years what we predict in the in the next five years or mm-hmm. so so they are they are fully informed when these regional advisory committees meet for their for their proposals so to speak and in the last four years they've discounted all of the state science even though the herd came through a 50 percent crash um, that's what really started the concern about yeah. subsistence use and priority but the herd has rebounded, it's stable, and there's still an allocation for uh, surplus harvest. So um, by state law, and the Board of Game agrees that a bag limit is still allowable for this herd. The only stipulation now is the racks have gone against the state science, against the recommendation of the Board of Game to propose these closures based entirely on local belief that non-locals are responsible for the struggles to find caribou in a timely fashion. Well, and not and not only not only against the state, but the working group itself. I mean, I read through the most current working group management plan and their newsletter, which basically just kind of condensed a lot of that information. Um, the 2020 newsletter, you know, there's there doesn't appear to be any even even from the working group that's a conglomeration of, of yeah. users and land managers. Like there's, there's, it leads you to the conclusion that it's purely an effort to keep non-locals out. Oh, it's and, and that, like there's no other conclusion you can come to. That's right. That's a legitimate. That's a legitimate conclusion. You know, and, and it's based in fact. Yeah, and I, uh, and even the working group itself, like that management plan, notes the conflict that's been going on for years. And I thought it was interesting. You, you know, and talking to some of the biologists, they think that maybe like this 240, 250,000 animals may be like a good, like normal average herd good size. sustainable number. Yeah. Right there that, you know, caribou herds are notorious for big swings like, you know, hares and cats, mm-hmm. you know, you know, big population. Then all the, you know, the old cat, the mature cows that drive the population start getting old and dying and the population takes a dive for a while. And then yeah. it's kind of a big oscillation and that's normal. Um I thought in the newsletter, I think it was like the Caribou Tracks mm-hmm. newsletter from Kirby 2020. Trails, yeah. Um, they have, uh, I can't remember who it was from, um, a native gentleman, like just an anecdote, you know, yep. about talking about when he remembered when when the caribou never showed up, with, like the first time the caribou started showing up because they used to herd reindeer out in that country. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you start, because I had never really dove in to try and start connecting dots. Um you know, mo- you know, moose hunting is another thing that I, uh, there was a paper saying that moose didn't really start showing up out there till the twenties. Yeah, and then they grew up, which you know I don't have the data to prove, but at the time that the moose were booming was when 
all the federal predator control was like full rip roar and yeah. all over that country too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely a cause effect relationship. You know, caribou is one of those species that we don't know. We think we know the science behind their ups and downs, but, um, I don't, I don't believe that that's the case. I think we're still learning and there's a lot to learn about, um, weather patterns, temperatures, specifically temperatures, mm-hmm. in my opinion, have a, a, a huge effect on the timing of their decision to move south and west. You know, mm-hmm. they, they spend a lot of time on the, on the slopes, r- good, healthy range to uh, fatten up. Um, would you want to move at 65, 75 degree temperatures or would you want to wait till it's like 50 degrees? And I believe that's that's kind of the case of, of what's happening with the Western Arctic is when the temperature gives them the indication they move and yeah. when it's when it's warm they just meal around and yeah sec- when it's when it's tolerable and they got good food you know there's got to be certain catalysts that get them yeah moving and doing what they do but and and in some ways you think because like i know on a micro scale that the, those caribou do leave trails the other ones will fall and i've heard stories of guys you know where you you spook a bunch of caribou and then the next band you know an hour later, whatever comes by that spot and they, they, they smell disperse, that yeah. they dispel, they, you know, where they excrete something when they're alarmed. But, you know, you got how many caribou migrate through Attigan pass every year yeah. to the other side. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any logical sense to me with my limited knowledge on it. And I haven't been able to dig up any, and it, it been indicated that there's no yeah. legitimate data to back up that claim. I mean, I can, I can understand being frustrated if you want to go caribou hunting and there's planes coming in full of caribou racks, you know, that guys are getting elsewhere, but it doesn't mean that there's a connection between, between those guys flying out and hunting and caribou not showing up when you want them there. Yeah. And the park service, the joint project with the state and the feds in terms of the park service and fishing game, I believe, and other scientists have done a a study on uh, the impacts of sport hunting and hunting pressure in the migratory zones and they came to the same i think that's the per- the paper someone sent yeah me, yeah, yeah it's, it was a good read and it it, it showed that uh, all of their evidence contradicted everything the natives have claimed you know all of their anecdotes just lacked science to to really prove their yeah. comments and they they don't have pictures they don't have video and in today's world we you know the Laws demand evidence, you know, substantial evidence of claims if you're going to restrict users, especially. Especially and, when nothing else is lining up to support yeah, and that, you know. There's a, yeah, there's a surplus harvest allocation. Um, yeah, non-locals deserve a chance to hunt these caribou. That's plain and simple. And, yeah, they, they do claim that uh, non, non-local hunters that come into Kotzebue are dumping meat in trash cans you know that was their that was their purpose for adding the conservation element to the argument to the proposal and uh, no one has any photos no video yeah no state trooper reports the state troopers couldn't corroborate their their uh anecdotes so and and no one in and no one's saying that if stuff like that goes on it's okay by any no absolutely not but you you also have to understand the immense pressure that that the permit holders are put under the transporters who yeah. have to prove that they act ethically. They have to be yep. trained for hauling meat out of 23 and 26 a like they are scrutinized to the umpteenth degree. They educate their hunters. Like don't go into town. Don't wear camo, you know, behave like this. Don't do that. Um, take care of your meat. Did you know, they, they receive more education and more hands-on interaction between the pilot and meat than anywhere else that I know of in the state besides maybe Bethel. Yeah. Um, anytime that there are subsistence users and a strong congregation or aggregation of non-locals, you're going to have some conflict. Mm-hmm. The The point is in this argument is they haven't allowed any, any non-locals to come in and help with user group issues. You know, these stated conflicts can be resolved through education and through enforcement and the locals so far have, turn their eye to all of those efforts to educate the the non-local public about proper meat care how to salvage meat from 23 and 26a Mm -hmm. because the rules are different out there like you have to leave pretty much everything everything but the backstraps 
on yeah, the bone. You have to bring it out for sure. Bring out everything, but that's not even the point as much as um, if they're saying that there's a conflict and we can show video proof that we've, you know, that we've educated yeah. the public. I mean, these, you know, more than 5,000 people have viewed these, the videos that we created through BHA for this community so that the, the user conflict is reduced and we've done our part. All we're asking for is to, you know, give us the allocation that we're allowed, which is less than 300 caribou almost every yeah. year that this herd yeah. has been it's like available. It's like, two, you know, in the past, since 2016, it's like 25 to 3% yeah. of the total harvest. And that's just a guess on the harvest because there's issues with with um, subsistence users reporting or oh, not, not reporting, you know, so they have, to, they have to guess as well. That's another issue. There's a lot of, like, uncomfortable issues that people don't like to talk about because they don't want to, you know— feelings get hurt and stuff like that no one's you know by you know like this discussion no one's intending anything like that it's but it's a very real effort to just close off a lot of what you know make what's technically public land that we all can go use not usable yeah yeah and that brings up the you know the 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 issue of well what happens if this closure goes through what where do we stand what are our what are our legal rights well according to the feds this proposal, if passed, will close 23 and 26A public lands. All federal public lands should be closed. There is, however, an argument that's somewhat, you know, it's been in the public's eye more than any time since uh, the Sturgeon case, Sturgeon versus Frost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he got stopped on, well, I don't want to go through that whole, that's a whole Google, you know, spend a couple of days learning his, his, uh, fate and spent a lot of money to fight the the federal government on his own behalf basically being stopped below mean high watermark with a hovercraft yep. we're not dealing with hovercrafts in 23 or 26a but we're dealing with federal public lands that according to the state and governor dunleavy's recent actions to basically reclaim anything below mean high watermark including the substrate is the state yeah and so that's considered state land and that has been the case for as long as I know, but if you speak with federal authorities or land managers, they have a different interpretation of that. But I can give you an example of how the feds just are mi- misguided in that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, if you might remember the the Charlie River, and that's a yep, it's it's basically flows through National Park Service uh, land. And one of the airstrips got blown out with a, a flood event, I think, in 2013, and it was closed to public use for several years. And I uh, submitted a proposal to the Park Service to restore this airstrip, a full 700-foot repair, um, almost three feet deep. It was basically that airstrip became a channel I see. of the Charlie. And um, <clears throat> once the rivers receded years later, I wanted to help reconstruct this airstrip so we did this park service allowed us the project i went in with the park service and a couple of other volunteers and we moved 200 uh, 200 pounds of rock and debris from near the edge of the river at the mm-hmm. charlie over to this airstrip which is only about 100 100 to 150 feet from the river's edge well this was galvin's airstrip you know this is widely known there was a guy that a family that put in this this airstrip cleared it and he had a land when the park service took over the charlie that basically became federal land against his wishes and his family's wishes but now it's been quote unquote pub, uh, federal public land use cabin yeah. kind of a public use cabin along the charlie river the interesting thing of the reason i brought this up is after that project was completed and we moved all of that gravel using helicopters, wheelbarrows, buckets, it was an amazing process. Ten days to repair this airstrip beautifully to 720 feet. About two weeks later, the Park Service um, boasted and ran an ad in the paper thanking BHA for their support and you know their contributions to volunteer work. And then behind the scenes, Department of Natural Resources slammed the door on the Fed, the National Park Service and said, what are you guys doing? You you guys didn't have a permit to um, to move to excavate on state land. And they were like, this is our land. This is National Park Service land. And they're like, no, it's below the mean high watermark, as evidenced by 
the cabin stains having two and a half feet of water stain on mm. the cabin. So that water line goes another 150 feet into the wood line. And this is anything below that debris field is state land. You needed a permit to move all that gravel. The park service was like, what? So they, that was never told to the public, hmm. but that was a behind the scenes authority breach where state says, no, we do own all of this land. And here's whatever citation they use for code of figure, code of figure relations, um, blase blase. They quoted their particular right to, to this land based on some entitlement, sovereignty entitlement. And the park service had to stand down and say, well, okay, we won't do that anymore. They still haven't said this is state land. They still claim the cabin and, and the new airstrip, but um, the same factors exist in 23 and 26 a. So my point is if these, if these closures are carried forth and adopted, I would encourage all public use, all public landowners that want to hunt that region to do so believe below mean high water mark. Your transporters can drop you off below mean high water mark outside control use areas, not congregated into one or two drainages in 26A on state land, yep. but dispersed evenly along the same landscape that's being closed by these federal, uh, by the FSB, um, if that's the case. Because one, law enforcement, is it's a gray area. Mm-hmm. State troopers don't generally patrol federal land, quote unquote. And the federal law enforcement don't have the manpower to patrol, you know, the state of Pennsylvania and Rhode Island combined. Yeah. Like, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and the transporters can legally put you in below mean high water mark, legally hunting according to the state hunting regulations and the border game allocations for caribou in that region. Yeah, well, and it's also worth noting that some of the, you know, some of the guys operating out there are just going to get pushed closer to the communities because that's where the limited amount of state land is too. Absolutely. And that's going to increase user conflict potential. Yeah. Yeah. There's no good that can come from these proposals. And what I see as a potential future, um, you know, something that could resolve or rectify this issue in the future in the next three years when, you know, wildlife special action Mm -hmm. 24-01 arrives is Sometime, somewhere between the Secretary of the Interior and the Office of Subsistence Management has to have a, a foothold of substantial evidence to support um, restricting non-locals because this is our resource. You know, this is a community statewide resource. And when the state and the Board of Game agrees that there is a harvestable surplus, every user group should have some opportunity. And if there is a restriction on non-locals, then it should be supported by substantial evidence. And I hope that that is what becomes, you know, some argument to stop these closures in the future. That's really the only thing that's that's going to make a difference is a policy change to say, yeah, we support your interest and we want to give you a priority, but you have to show us substantial evidence that non-locals are actually causing these anecdotal problems that, that we're yeah. hearing about. Yeah, well, and and it and it doesn't help that matters that Unit Thirteen just had, however much BLM land. I mean, the same thing, you know. And you hear people, oh, the people that that live down there or in Delta, oh, this is this is great, you know. That well, of course it's great if, until you're the one that can't go hunt on pub, you know, on public ground where you should be able to. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, and and the precedence this sets is pretty pretty scary one i mean it just it just lines everything up to knock all you know lock up the vast majority of the state yeah and it's happening fast enough through land management issues having nothing to do with hunting you know blm still has ownership of management over 42 percent of the state i believe is the current estimate that they still hold as you know management authority and they're primary mission statement is to release their lands, transfer them back to native corporations and individuals. That's their mission statement. Hmm. So in the next 20 years, it started in 2004 with Murkowski's Land Acceleration Transfer Act, and it has been just last week or the week before, BLM gave up 9 million acres near National Petroleum Reserve in 26A. No one is talking about that in the public. They need to be aware of how fast public land is shrinking. So any opportunities that non-locals have 
are shrinking and it takes guys like us and, and groups that are, um, you know, that care about these issues to, to really get involved, stay informed and fight these proposals as soon as they come out. Cause as we're learning here, we had about two weeks yeah. uh, of energy that we can put into to stopping this proposal. And that's not much time for people who are largely uninformed. Yeah, no. And, and it's tough. And you know, and there's a lot of complicity, complicity I see in setting up the system to keep things quiet and, and do stuff kind of under the table and let, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. You really, yeah. I mean, it's tough for everybody to pay attention. You can't, everybody can't pay attention to everything all the time. And it's, it makes it easier for stuff like this to slip through. Absolutely. So hopefully, you know, I mean, hopefully that they're, they're getting enough held given to them that, uh, that it's, it's enough to make a difference, you know, who knows, they may, they may already have their minds made up. There's only so much you yeah. can do, but I think if any, anyone willing and able can, can now call into that meeting. Absolutely. Three o'clock PM, Alaska time this Friday, um, make your voice known and try to keep it under three minutes. That's the only, you know, the, 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 one thing I've learned from these public testimonies is you might prepare a five minute speech and they tell you, you have three minutes or cut you off at three yeah. minutes. So uh, front load your, you know, your, your opposition to the proposal in the first minute of your speech and, uh, try to get it done two and a half, three minutes. And, um, yeah, that's about 400 to 450 words max. Yeah, just if it's you're not writing very something. much. Yeah. So, you know, and the, I mean, the principles are, are pretty simple. Like they, they just, it shouldn't be closed to everybody. And if without evidence so that, that what's going on is going on and there is none. Yeah. Yeah, not to pimp another forum or website, but we've we've hashed out. There's been over five thousand views of this proposal, and all of the documents that support it, all the public meetings. If you want to be fully informed before you uh, give your public Is testimony, that that rock slide thread. Yeah, rok slide rockslide dot com, and uh, go to the forums, click on Caribou, and you'll see federal proposals to close public lands in twenty three twenty six a thread punch on that you've got like six or seven pages of really good um informative you know discussion about this topic yeah no man yeah i'm glad you could come over and, and discuss it yeah. especially on such short notice <laughs> uh, it's public service i'm happy to help <laughs> yeah and it's yeah it's good to, good to see you too um other stuff going on if you don't you know you're not aware larry's responsible for a lot of pretty awesome ingenuity over the years the 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 tag bags for one, the game, those game bags. I mean, they're pretty, pretty damn hard to beat. And, and you put a lot of research into, into doing those. I mean, those were yeah. the original yeah, synthetic it, game bag. Yeah. Tag bags. Um, that was, that's what sparked the, uh, game bag that, you know, the synthetic game bag revolution, you yeah. know, now there's 10 or 12 companies that have their own version of these same bags that really no one believed in when we first, when yeah. I first put them out, you know, like, I don't know. Plastic material, you know, nylon, that doesn't seem right, you know, and, um, but it's obviously proven super effective. And how much weight has it saved us in the backcountry? Oh, a ton of, a ton of weight. And I mean, how much Compact, meat, how much yeah. meat it saved, you know, yeah, any, any of those, you know, cheesecloth cotton bags, they just, I mean, there's was several, you know, there's a sheep hunt several years, well, several years ago. It's been, it's been, been a lot many, long, it's yeah. been a while, but, uh. You know, I think I was the only one that had them and, and everyone else getting fly eggs and, and stuff. Just, you know, they're they're the only bags really that are like impervious to bugs. They dry out quick. And yeah. that's that. I mean, you did a ton of a ton of research into that. Oh, yeah. Science. I'm more of the, I'm more of the like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's just try it. (laughs) Yeah. And you're, you, yeah, you did your research. Yeah. Proof of theory was thorough. Microbial growth and and all that stuff. Um, that, and yeah, you got a whole bunch, you designed a whole bunch of, of rafts and float hunting seems to be probably your, would you say that's your kind of forte? I think it is. Yeah. It's just a niche that I fell in love with and there wasn't a lot of literature and back then the internet hadn't really caught on, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was available, but it wasn't the main form of communication that we have today. So, um, we relied on magazines and books for, you know, for Intel mm-hmm. mid nineties. And, uh, the, the places that I wanted to go, you just can't drag a seven foot wide, 16 foot long raft. You know, the, you'd still be dragging 20 years later in some places. So, you know, it just, it felt right to me to 
sort of innovate different designs suitable for you know creek channels versus river channels and yeah it's been it's been a popular niche to stay in small market but a good lifestyle yeah well a lot of people don't realize you know like even big you know quote unquote big rivers like you may have a channel that you know it's a quarter mile, half mile across, but everything's braided and you're dealing with a bunch of tiny little creek channels yeah. and a bunch of dragon and... Yeah. Yeah. Float dragon. That's yeah, for sure. I imagine, uh, this, I've watched some of your videos over the years and that's, uh, it's probably pretty dis- disheartening when you get, get, you get to a spot and the, and the water's low and you end up, you, I don't know how many miles you've had to drag rafts over the years, but it sounds many. exhausting. <laughs> many. That's why I'm in such good shape. Yeah. <laughs> Good muscle you, memory, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, well, I won't keep you won't keep you for too long. But yeah, anything else? You got any big plans for you know for this pl- year? What what do you got going? Well, I've got two kids, you know, and uh, seven and five. So when I'm not wanting to kill myself in frustration, I'm <laughs> I want to get them out. Yeah. You know, get them out camping. And uh, last year we. My partner and I flew in with the kids and, you know, we spent six days on the wild river and floated down to Bettles. Oh, nice. Yeah. And even though, even through the mosquitoes, um, you know, the rainy spells, they caught fish and you, you saw the, the spark and the love of, in their eyes of just the passion for just being outside dirty mm-hmm. and, you know, being on public land. I mean, that's really what inspires me to inspire my kids or at least provide opportunities that that i didn't have growing up you know yeah my kids don't even know how good they have it flying in a bush plane at five and seven years old yeah that's the same same way here discuss that periodically my my son he's he's five now and he's all about he's been on the podcast a couple times spinning his yarns but he yeah (laughs) he's all about it and i'm just like you don't know how how good you had it you know compared to how i try to try to convey how how, how you how, grew how lucky up. he is and yeah. how I grew up and you know I always dreamed of doing this kind of stuff and you know you just don't get it and it's probably always a balance between spoiling them and yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but yeah someday someday he'll he'll realize how good he had it but yeah. yeah being able to go do stuff like that is I mean that's part of what makes Alaska Alaska is if, hey I just want to go in that direction and go absolutely I can you know absolutely. I don't have to worry about you know, which, which little section I've got, you know, some yeah. checkerboard of sections and all sort of different land, you know, I mean, we, it's got spots where you just, we're going that direction and yeah, a couple we'll, of hundred miles yep. and we'll float back down to civilization. Yep. So, yep. It's a, it's an important thing. So if, if anyone can make, make the call on that and, uh, I have a feeling, you know, it's not going to get any better as far as. It's not going to get easier. These battles are going to keep keep happening, and yeah, they they seem to be on a three year cycle. Yeah. And uh, you know, just a heads up, one of the meeting notes from this last, um, you know, for investigating all of this intel, I've realized that the Park Service is also educating the racks on ways that they can avoid putting in these proposals or adding to such proposals by um, restricting the timing of when commercial services yeah. are offered in you know in these regions. So. That's something else that might come to fruition is you know, your transporter might be limited to, well, I can't, I can't even fly. My permit is delayed. It's like a delayed entry use. Yeah. Um, no, I think, and I think. That's a scary thought. And, and it goes back to, you know, depending on who you ask. I mean, I think, I think a lot of these agencies are very complicit in this because it works toward, you know. Yeah. The, it works towards a lot of their goals of making the whole state a big park and having ultimate control over it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's my, that's my opinion, the way I see things and it, uh, you know, yeah, stuff like that. Like, are they really supposed to be, you know, where they're like, Oh, but if you word it like this, then we can take control and, yeah, and help you out where really, I don't think a lot of their, a lot of them have any interest in helping the locals out. It's just using, you know, the federal government has a pretty good record of, of using people groups to yeah, to accomplish their own goals. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm, certainly, I think they use policy. I think they're yeah. they're really policy driven uh, agencies. And you know, it it for once you learn the system, you have less angst toward the individuals. Yeah. In in the federal government, and that's an important. 
I think that's an important thing to mention because, you know, a lot of, you know, non-locals, us, me, you, the rest of my community, I hear a lot of anti-Fed, you know, um, language. And, you know, I, I was once married to a federal law enforcement officer, so I, I just learned the system a little better and realized that it's not the people, it's the policy. Yeah. And the federal system is set up to basically govern that policy, and they don't like to deviate from that policy uh, regardless of, you know, they really can't show sympathy to user groups if it's not written or mandated by policy. Yeah. And that's a, that's an important thing to remember that it, they're not the enemy, but what we have to do as a, as a non-local user group is really uh, come together and learn the system, learn how to empower ourselves and, and work with these proposals in a way that we're doing with wildlife special action 2101 is we're saying, well, here's your policy. Here's a federal policy. Here, here's uh, a NILCA language that shows no, you need substantial evidence. Here's yeah. a code of federal re- code of federal re- regulation, two nineteen like Bravo one. Uh, it specifically says substantial evidence ev- evidence based solutions. You know, yeah. they have to show proof, and they're not. So hopefully, they'll come to their realization, and this proposal won't pass. But it takes our input. And follow through with learning the system and using it to our yeah, own advantage. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. Hopefully, everyone's a little nervous about it. I've never, you know, I, I've never hunted up there, and I don't really have any direct plans to. But the principle of it and yeah, and what it what it represents and sets precedence for. Absolutely, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. It's the, important. So the principle is important. Yep. But yeah. Well, anyway, I guess we'll we'll see what happens. Do you know when they? Because this is a public input meeting, and then they're supposedly going to be – have they set, like, a board, a well, board the, meeting to yeah, vote on yeah, it? Yeah, so the federal subsistence management uh, will um, – what they're saying, basically, their their language is will analyze public testimony and make a decision. And that usually happens in three to four weeks max. Gotcha. So I would expect by – gosh, what is that, late May? I yeah. think we'll know something. Yeah. Yep. Well, we can only, only do what we can do, but yeah, yeah, thanks for, yeah, thanks for coming and and talking more about that and, uh, and for, you know, raising, raising the issues that you do, especially, you know, there's been several good, good rock slide threads that you're initiating and and people can go find a lot of good information on. I hope it helps. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. Thanks, Larry. And, uh, if you enjoy, if, if you enjoy Tundra Talk, appreciate if you, uh, leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And if you don't like it, you can leave a bad one. I don't care. (laughs) So, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody.